the Bible says he that uh, wants to have friends must show himself friendly. And over my life, I've made that a priority in my life, to build strong community, to build strong relationships, strong friendships with people. C.S. Lewis once said, marriage is for this life, but friendships are for eternity. And you think about that. You think about the only thing we're really going to spend eternity with is friendships because marriage is not the same in the next life. And so friendships are so important. These relationships we build on this side of eternity are so important. And about 40 years ago, God brought a family into my life, the Metcalf family. And that family was very instrumental in my Christian journey and walk and entering into ministry. The man that I'm going to introduce to you, Dana, and his wife, Bridget, have just an incredible call of God upon their life. And they're going to tell us their story in just a moment. But I, I want you to hear something about friendships. Friendships are bound together by this thing. The commonality for all of us that have deep relationships with other people is the cause of Christ. And what I love about Dana and, and about Bridget is their complete commitment to making the name of Jesus famous in their generation. From Bangladesh as missionaries to pastors in, in Tucson, Arizona, or Scottsdale, or Cottonwood, wherever God has called them, they've been committed to this thing, to seeing people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And I want you to welcome today a great friend of mine, a great friend of this house, missionaries to Bangkok, Thailand. Can you welcome Dana and Bridget Metcalf? Come on, let's give them a great big hand. Uh-oh. Check out this video. When people come to Thailand, they're searching for hope, not just jobs and entertainment. They're searching for fulfillment. The city's population is over 15 million people. 95% of them are Buddhist and only 0.9% are Christian. So it's a very international city that represents really the world, but it's also a city that's very lost. Bangkok is the hub of international travel. There's a lot of hustle and bustle, and I think that it's easy to get confused and feel hopeless and feel overwhelmed. You see uh, idols and temples all over the place but it's, it's an idol made of wood or gold or just stone. It's not real, it's not tangible. We know that there's people who have never really heard the gospel and understand that Jesus died for them. We want them to feel like the church is a place that's accessible, but more importantly, that God is accessible. That's what this is all about. Jesus Christ is the one who transforms lives. I've always envisioned to lead a church that is multicultural and international, and International Christian Assembly has been without a pastor for the past couple of years, and they've asked us to come and just to bring new vision and leadership. One of the advantages that I see with Pastor Dana and Bridget coming in as lead pastors is they have a clear vision as to what they want to see take place. This is a leader that we can support, that we can follow, because he's not just coming on his own to try to be the hero to save the church, but rather he's wanting to utilize those that are already there to mobilize them and release them for ministry as a team. In the church, there's over 40 nationalities represented, and we're able to reach just um, a whole variety of different people from different nations. We feel like it's an incredible opportunity to not just touch Thailand, but to touch India, Cambodia, Nepal, to touch every nation. 
we also want to launch Chi Alpha Ministry, which is a campus ministry that reaches the students, which we believe is the most strategic mission field in the world. One day, I meet a group of missionary students. Yes, they, they come to teach English and I like to join them. I really appreciate that friendship with them. Yeah, and then I accepted Christ after, before they left because Jesus changed my life. I ha I'm happy every day, I'm smiling every day, yes. I usually pray for, to have missionary come back and please Thai students or Thai people to know more about Christianity, yes. We also had an opportunity to go to the red light district where there's women that have been trafficked all over the world. We can touch the lives of the women in the red light district by just loving them. Let them realize that Jesus is real, he's tangible, and he sent us to go and not just talk with them, not just to uh, embrace them, but to truly love them. The people here are hungry to have an encounter with God. This is a time and season for us to be sent to the field, to be vanguards on the front lines of the field. And we're asking you to partner with us and help resources so that we can get to the field quickly and begin the ministry that we know that God has called us to. 25 years we've had this burning desire to come to Asia. All the years of ministry has been a preparation for this time, for this place. And I truly believe that as we lift Jesus high and we lift high our banner, we'll see a revolution, we'll see revival, we'll see God's presence prevail. Good morning, City Church, and it's such an honor and a privilege to be with you here this morning. And I just want to say thank you for allowing us to be your hands extended. The fruit that we see and encounter in Bangkok, Thailand will also be your fruit. And so we can rejoice together in what God is going to be doing. And I have to tell you that your pastors are some of our favorite pastors in all the world. Uh, they're very special people. Yeah, let's give it up to Pastor Eugene and Laura. They have been personal friends, they have been inspiration to us, and they've actually been second parents to our oldest son, Jamin, while he was here at Southeastern University. And, and I am just so grateful and appreciative. You truly have amazing pastors. But I just wanted to share with you really quickly a ministry that uh, I'll be doing. It's called Sealed Ministry. And we took a team of sealed ladies uh, to Kolkata, India, into the darkest place of the world in the red light district. How many know that in the darkest places is where God's light shines the brightest, amen? Can you say a great amen with me? Amen. Yeah, and so we went into the red light district of Kolkata and as we went through these narrow streets and narrow alleyways, we met a lady by the name of Gita who actually was from Bangladesh and was sold by her parents into the industry, the sex trafficking industry. She had been in that industry for 27 years. After 27 years, the gospel reached her through a Project Rescue, which is a, a, a ministry that comes in and teaches the ladies trades. And so she started getting involved in that. She invited us into her little home. And as we went into this house, and it was just a one-room house where she stood right in front of us, and we just started worshiping the Lord together. And in my mind, I kept thinking, 
Lord, why, why is she still here? What is she doing here? But little did I know the influence that she had on the women around her, those who were the women of the night. As we started worshiping and praising the Lord, all of a sudden we started seeing these different faces of the women coming and popping their heads in and interest in and what we were doing. They were attracted to the presence of God. They started bringing their children and they started begging us to pray and to bless them. One of the ladies shared with me that when she was just a child, her parents were so disappointed that she was a little girl. And they said, you know, her life isn't have, doesn't have much value. And so we're going to mark her for this industry. And that's how she'll bring value into our family. And so they sold their daughter into the red light district. She'd been in that district for 15 years. And she had a little mark on her forehead, and, and she said, I, I am marked for this. And we started praying over her, and we started praying that her value in Christ Jesus and saying, you are marked for the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. And so thank you so much for partnering with us as we share the gospel and rescue these women from this industry. And God bless you this morning. Amen. Good morning. Just say we are so honored and grateful to uh, be at City Church here in Orlando this morning to be able to minister to you. Uh, I want to say also that uh, Pastor Eugene and, and Laura are such dear and special friends. Uh, several years ago, when Bridget and I endeavored to uh, plant a new work in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, we started with less than 10 people. Four of those were our family. And uh, it was uh, somewhat overwhelming and intimidating. We left a church of 5,000 people to take on this new assignment, a church where there was eight pastors in 20 years. It was literally a pastoral graveyard, and the church basically died. And uh, we stepped into that, and the first person that began to contact me was your pastor, not just as a friend, but as a leader, saying that we're praying for you. He would call oftentimes on a Saturday night and I would be down at the church by myself praying in this old dilapidated building. And he would call and just give such words of encouragement and prayers. And for many years, he would make that connection with me all the way in Scottsdale. And it was such a difference maker um, in my life uh, as a leader, knowing that uh, he was behind us. Some of you probably were a part of those prayer meetings as well. And uh, I'm so, so grateful. Uh, for leaders and, and friends like that. One thing I love about your pastor is he deeply values people. And that really is the mark of a great ministry is that as a shepherd that we value people. It's not just the ministry and the call, but we truly value people as shepherds. And he is a man like that. And I'm just so grateful. And I want to say thank you, Pastor Eugene, uh, for all those words of encouragement uh, over the years. I want to speak to you this morning um, about a topic that is very dear to Bridget and I's heart. Over the years, we've had the opportunity and privilege to be able to disciple many leaders who are living in different countries today and doing ministry. And, and uh, the Lord has given us a legacy, not really of a building or a book, but uh, just relationships, knowing that the kingdom of God is built on relationships. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years that has always just touched my heart and made the ministry uh, so exciting of what we've experienced of leading teams all around the world in different countries and to do ministry, uh, including Thailand, is the fact that uh, many of the, the teams that we took literally would understand the dynamic and the importance of just being a disciple of Christ, but not only that, of being a daring disciple, a daring disciple. There was a team, I took a team of 50 college students, and I we love doing college ministry, and 
our church that we led in Scottsdale and started, there was really built on a team uh, of college students to help us uh, start the church. They were the ones that were daring to take the risks. And we always, we had kind of a motto or a mission statement, if you dare to do the ridiculous, God will do the impossible. Can somebody say amen to that? I mean, have you ever been on those points where it's like, this is daring, this is ridiculous, people are going to laugh when they hear me say this or do this, but that's what we see in the disciples of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and we see it today as well, that daring disciples who dare to do the ridiculous, knowing that God will do the impossible, I'll never forget an experience, we took 50 college students to the country of Israel, not for a tour, but for ministry, a door opened for us there to minister uh, to Arabs, and our first encounter, and I kept telling them, you know, you just got to dare to do the ridiculous here. I know this is Israel. I know it's volatile, and uh, but we went in and we had a we uh, had a charter bus with 50 daring college students, daring disciples, and our first um, ministry encounter was a Bedouin village on the Lebanon border, and we unloaded out of the the van 50 students. We had copies of the Jesus Jesus video in Arabic. Most of the Bedouins in that village spoke English. We went out distributing these videos. We're witnessing. They welcomed us. I mean, it was really amazing how open they were. But our driver of our bus, who was a Russian Jew, found out that we were there not just to visit the village, but we were there to evangelize. He got very angry and upset, jumped on the bus, and drove off and left us on the Lebanon border. So the journey began. <laughs> and these daring disciples, you know, uh, of what God did during that time. And even in that trip, I, I was amazed at how daring these young people were. That God, while we were there, opened a door in the Gaza Strip. It was back in um, when you could still get in there. And uh, there was just a handful of believers in the Gaza Strip at that time. And they said, would you bring your team in and do ministry there? And I thought to myself, you know, all of their parents, if they knew what we're about to do, they probably would just not allow this to happen. I was like, well, just tell them when you get home, okay? Don't tell them that. And we took our uh, some of our team in, just kind of a select group that we went in there uh, with, and we did it, literally an open-air meeting uh, right near where Yasser Arafat's house was, and the, we got uh, permission from the Prime Minister of the Interior uh, of the Gaza Strip to do this meeting. And I we just, it was just kind of one of those things that was unknowingly opened up while we were there. But all of these daring young people, it was so amazing to watch them as they're sharing their testimonies and getting up and sharing that, you know, I know that Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus can do what he says he will do. And the power of God moves so, so powerfully in that place. And it was Palestinians, dignitaries, sitting on in the front and they were crying and God just really touched them and then after the meeting we didn't know what to expect I mean you literally could hear gunfire in the distance and blocks away and everything and one of the girls on our team came up and she said Pastor Dana you've taught us to dare to do the ridiculous God did the impossible tonight in this place and she said we made history tonight didn't we you know and I said yeah I think we did and one of the few believers that was a leader there came up and he said, you don't realize how significant this is. This is the first open-air outreach in the history of the Gaza Strip. And it's just your group of college students that are doing this. And it was just, um, 
It's amazing. And from that, I, I thought to myself, this was many years ago, I thought, I just, I want to challenge people. I want to challenge you this morning, each and every one of you that are sitting here, that God wants to call you out this morning, and he wants you to be a daring disciple, dare to do the ridiculous so that he can do the impossible, that what he calls you to, and, and be history makers in this generation, not just to live in the status quo, to be the difference makers that, that God has called us to be in the kingdom, not in a foolish manner, but spirit-led by the Holy Spirit as he calls us out, and that's what daring disciples are, and the call this morning is to become a daring disciple in the kingdom of God, and I want to look at an example beginning with Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus commands, not an option, but he gives a mandate in Matthew 28, 18 for what the disciples are to do before he leaves to go to the Father in heaven. He leaves them with this mandate, and really it's a mandate to disciple the nations. Let's look at it together. He came and told his disciples, I've, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this verse, there's that mandate to make disciples. Not just to make converts, but to make disciples, to challenge them, to call them out, and to give them a purpose that's greater than what anything that they can possibly imagine. And this is what the church is called to do, to be salt and light, even in this community here, that your church should not only be on the map, but the church should have that reputation. The church needs to have that reputation in the community, that they're salt and light, that they're a daring church to reach out and meet needs that nobody else wants to reach. We see this happen over and over again. He calls them to that. And in that, you know, we see Jesus begin the process of building a team of daring disciples that I think is really truly remarkable how he does it. And where it begins, it, it really begins with, with validating somebody and calling them out and believing in them. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 18, we see where Jesus called him out and he believed. And one day he's walking just along the shore and he saw two brothers, Simon, and also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And in this, they asked them to do something. And he says, you know what? You're fishing for fish, but come follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once, and they followed him. Now, there's a very important principle here that I think for all of us to be able to really embrace uh, this morning about being a daring disciple. Jesus, first of all, he calls them out. And then really what they do, I think, is, is truly significant for us this morning. They lay down their nets, what they were doing, and they leave them behind and they follow after Jesus. Every transition to go forward in our life to possess the promise that God has for us in the church, in the ministry, in your family, when the Lord is calling you to do something daring, when you feel a sense of moving on in your life, it's a lot of times the Lord's like, I need you to lay something down and leave it behind so that you can go and possess your future. Hallelujah. We see this happen in so many situations, even with Moses and Joshua, in the situation where Joshua was like, you're going to go into the promised land, you're going to cross the Jordan, but you're not going to take anybody of the Moses generation with you. You're only going to take your generation. You're going to have to leave them behind. They died in the wilderness. 
And I, I think in my own heart, when I look at that, it's like, why, Lord, couldn't you take in some of the people from that generation? Well, they were complainers. They murmured. They complained against the Lord. And, and God's like, you know what? You're not going to take any whiners in, but I don't need whiners to mark around, march around the walls of Jericho and bring down the stronghold. But I need somebody, not a whiner, but I need true worshipers. And so they leave them behind. And he takes in his generation, and they begin to possess the land and possess the promise. They were a daring group of people that dared to believe God for the supernatural, and, and they saw the impossible things that people would look at and say, that can't happen. But God said, yes, it can happen. Called them out. I, I, I see this happen even in the, the secular world where coaches, life coaches, and encouragers and and people of great stature that they get this discipleship principle of how the Lord and access early in the stage of making a disciple of calling them out and and believing them that's really the first point he he calls them out and believes in them many years ago many of you would might remember the very last show that Oprah Winfrey had on TV and uh, keep in mind that she interviewed over 30,000 people on her show during a very successful career um, in, in her show, and it was the show that everybody wanted to be on because Oprah Winfrey had that unique ability to believe in people and call things out of them, and many of them today are extremely successful and well-known names that nobody even knew about before they came on her show, and she said the one thing in that last show, she said that I, that I found is the common denominator of everybody that has come on my show that I have interviewed, the common denominator is this, is that everybody wants to be validated. Everybody wants somebody to believe in them, that there's something special about my life and something unique about my life. And, and even as a parent, you know, you're not just parenting your children and raising them, but you're called to disciple your children and to call them out to greater things and to believe in them and say, yes, you can do this and, and you will do it. My parents probably were really significant in my life in that realm that would call me out. My mom used to tell people, I have two brothers that are both pastors. And like, how did you end up with all three sons being pastors? She's like, I don't know. I, I made a lot of mistakes. I'm, I'm no different than most parents, she says. But I know that my ministry is to disciple my children. That's my ministry. And she discipled us, and she called us out when we need to be called out. There was a young man, that a college student, that used to come to our service, and he would walk in late every week during worship or even during my message with a girl on his arm. They would flirt around during the service. It was so disrespectful. He was disengaged. I was Every week, I would just get more angry at this guy, and I thought, okay, I'm done. I'm going to call him out and tell him you're no longer welcome. Well, that's not very pastoral. So I thought, well, I'd pray about this first, but I knew in my flesh what I wanted to do, but I thought, well, I'll go before the Lord. And, and I felt like God said to me, you can call him out, but I want you to validate him. And I'm like, well, Lord, there's nothing to validate other than he needs to leave, you know. So, and so I did. I met him at Wendy's, and he comes in with his sunglasses on, you know, and he's just, he's just this arrogant guy. His dad was an executive for Ford Motor Company, drove around in new Ford cars, and had the girls and all, everything, all the swag, everything you could think of. And I'm sitting there, and he's like, hey, man, what's up? You know, what, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I just want to ask you a question. He goes, yeah, go for it. And I said, well, I just want to ask you this question, Andrew. What are you doing with your life? And he didn't respond. I thought, well, maybe he didn't hear me. I said, Andrew, what are you doing with your life? He goes, what do you mean? 
I said, well, man, you, you know, you come into my service every week and coming in there and you're disengaged, you're disrespectful and you're, you're a distraction to me. I don't even know why you come. It's like, you know, and then I'd be, I thought, okay, I'm going to validate him. I said, you know what? You grew up in the church. You know what this is about. I said, you're full of potential. You've got talent. You've got charisma. You've, man, you've got it all, but you're doing nothing with it. And I called him out. I began to validate him. And I said, all this potential is being wasted. And he just looked at me and he took off his glasses and goes, man, what do you think I should do? And I thought, okay, here's my opportunity. And I said, okay, well, the first thing you need to do is dump your girlfriend. I thought, I'm just going to give them the test right here. You need to dump your girlfriend. And he's like, okay. I was shocked. It's like, okay. It's like you needed somebody just to, you know, I knew the relationship was just fickle. It was just all a show. And he's like, okay. And I said, I want you to come to the service 30 minutes early and meet for prayer with us, with my prayer team. I want you to sit on the front row and engage in worship. I want you to meet with me every week, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mentor you and begin a discipleship process in your life and begin to call out those things that God wants to use in your life. And I just went down and all, and he did. The next week, he showed up 30 minutes early. He's sitting on the front row. I was stunned. He was worshiping. He just started engaging. He came in single. Girlfriend was gone. I just... <laughs> And I just, I couldn't believe it. And then three months later, he's standing on my platform leading worship. And he just continued on and on. And, and I, it was one of those stories that became one of the most loyal to this day. I mean, he leads worship at his church in Green Bay, Wisconsin. His wife is a tenured professor at the university there. He's head of the men's ministry. I mean, he's a phenomenal leader. Been on many mission trips around the world with me. And what is my, one of my most loyal uh, friends and confidants even to this day. I never would have imagined in my mind, and I'm thinking of an Andrew and a Peter and all of these disciples that probably everybody would look at and think, you know what, these guys have no potential, you know, they're not going to go into Jesus, just basically see something that they don't see. He calls them out and, and he realizes they can be the daring disciples and on the team that I need to do the work of the kingdom called them out and believed in them. Number two, in, in uh, John chapter 21, we see something unique here. After the resurrection, Jesus is dead. He's been discipling and building their faith in the course of this three years, but now it just seems like everything comes to a halt, and Peter said, you know, I don't know what else to do. Jesus is dead. He's gone. I'm going to go fishing. I don't know what else to do. And they all said, well, we're going to come with you. And so they got on the boat, and they went out, and they caught nothing all night. They fished, and at dawn, Jesus was standing at the beach. And he says, he could see that, you know, they haven't caught anything. He says, have you caught anything? No. And he said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll get some. And they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there was so many fish in it. And I was thinking about this, that, that Peter's thinking, you know what, I need a plan. The master's gone. I don't know what else to do. And he just kind of made a plan. Let's just go fishing. Okay, we're going to go with you. And then it in, ends up just being kind of a disaster. It says in the book of Proverbs that man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. How many have ever made a plan, but it just didn't turn out like you thought it was going to turn out? You know, it's like I made a lot of plans in ministry. It's like, man, I thought I had this thing really planned well and everything was in sync. And then all of a sudden, it's like I just got stopped in my tracks. And 
Mike Tyson, um, a famous boxer from years ago, made a statement. He said, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. <laughs> I thought, yeah. And these guys basically fished all night and got hit in the face. And Jesus shows up. It was like, that's a familiar voice. He calls out to them, and he gives them a rhema word. He said, you know, like, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and they can't hardly, couldn't hardly get all the fish in. And that's what it's like when we get hit in the face. I can share so many experiences, and you can too. It's like I got hit in the face, and, and all of a sudden it's like my, my ministry, my call, everything's on hold. It's like, well, maybe I'm not called to this. Maybe I'm not really called to be a disciple. Maybe this was just too ridiculous to, you know, that, that and I just, I just got slammed. And stopped in my tracks or whatever. But that's when we go back to the Lord and we listen for the familiar voice of the Holy Spirit. And he gives us a rhema word. You know, and it's one of those things that was different than anything that we thought of. And he builds our faith with it. He calls them out and he believes in them. But he continued to disciple them even to the very end. And he's building their faith. It's like, don't forget to listen for my voice. I mean, you can make your plan. You can go fishing and you can fish all night long in ministry, your life, whatever it is you want to do to be fruitful and not catch anything until the voice from the shore, the voice of the Holy Spirit says, cast your net there. Then it comes over. In John chapter 13, in my third point, I think is quite significant because it, it again, is not only he's believing them, he's building their faith, but there's also something in the discipleship process of developing a daring disciple that we all need to really truly embrace and understand, and that's that God will always come and he'll break our box. He'll challenge us, the Holy Spirit will speak to us, your pastor, your leaders will challenge you in areas that would maybe even terrify you. It's like, I couldn't stand on the platform and, and give a word of the Lord. I couldn't pray prophetically. I couldn't sing that song. I couldn't do that. You know, we're seeing all the things in the natural, but realize that you don't need faith for what you can do. Listen, you need faith for what you cannot do. And that's where breaking the box comes in. It's like, it's like you know, Jesus is like, I'm going to give you assignments. I'm going to call you out. And it's going to be something that you can't do yourself. You can't do in your strength. It's like you got to completely rely upon him. And he breaks the box of the natural in our life, what's safe, what is secure, and all that. And he breaks the box. And he gives us the faith for something that we cannot do. And he does this with the disciples in so many different ways in the process of forming a team of daring disciples. Many years ago, in this, in John chapter 13, I was reading these verses, and, and it says in there in verse 3 that he knew the Father has given him authority. And again, he's sharing that again, as he did with the Great Commission over everything. And he got up from the table, he took his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist. He's getting ready to break their box here. Culturally, spiritually, pours the water in the basement. Then he began to wash their feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. And I was reading that verse, and at the end of my first year, my early in my career as a single missionary in Bangladesh, I, I felt like I wasn't connecting with with these young, 11 young men that I was discipling and shaping. Man, I wanted a team of daring disciples to go into the, the villages with me. And, but there was just kind of a disconnect as a, as a teacher and student. And they kept their distance from me. 
And I grew up more in a desktop discipleship mode where I never had a private conversation with a college professor that called me out or believed in me. They just gave me lectures and teaching, and it was all done in the classroom. And I thought, well, that's what it takes to be a disciple. You know, you go through the process, get your college degree and all of that, and go to all the lectures. And that's what I did. I gave them my best lectures and teaching. It's what was modeled to me. But I felt like God speak to me and said, you know, you got to get your hands a little dirty. Put your lectures aside. They've been good for the last year, but, you know, you want a breakthrough here. And I felt like God just said to me, why don't you get your hands dirty and wash their feet? I'm like, Lord, this is really ridiculous because in this culture, in this country, you don't touch somebody's feet. I mean, that just, that doesn't happen. You don't even point the bottom of your foot at somebody. It's like, you know, really offending them. And I could, my ministry could be in shambles after if I do this. This is crossing the line with culture and everything else. But I just felt so compelled. It's like, you got to get your hands dirty. You just, you know, they, they've had enough of your lectures. So I brought them up to my apartment and we had a meal together. I shared from these scriptures and I thought, you know what? This is breaking my box, but it's really going to break their box. <laughs> And it did, and they just resisted, and they said, this is Bangladesh, this is, you know, our culture, you can't touch our feet, you're the teacher, we're the student. They just gave me the whole list of reasons, and I just wanted to run out of my apartment that night. I thought, this is not going to work, but I just kept moving forward. I just felt like the Holy Spirit kept compelling me. It's like, this is going to break your box. I know it's going to break their box, but you need to do it. So I... I I shared the one verse that kind of quieted, quieted things down when I said, Peter said to Jesus, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. You remember the story Jesus said back to Peter, well, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you can't have no part of me. Well, Peter's like, okay, wash my feet, but then my whole body too. You know, I don't want to miss out on this. And so I, I went down and I, they're sitting there and I just, I just kneeled down and the first guy, I never forget, his name is Neil Rotone and and he was just sitting, and he pulled his feet back under the chair. I'm like, great, you're going to make this really difficult for me. You know, I had to reach under the, the chair and, and grab him by the ankles and pull his feet out. And I had myself girded with a towel, and I poured the water over, and I just began to wash his feet. And Okay, here we go. We'll break the box here. Break every cultural rule. But then I stood up and looked at him, he's just sitting there sobbing. And then I started crying. Then I, I laid my hands on his head and just began to pray prophetically over this young man. Then I went to the next one and pulled his feet out and prayed over him. And by in the next 20, 30 minutes, they're sitting there, they're crying and they're praying and we're worshiping. And I'll never forget it. That all the months of teaching, lectures, programs, all that, and I finally felt like I bonded with these young men for the first time. I thought, Lord, that was so easy. It's like, I know, you just, sometimes you, <laughs> it's the, the most profound things are the simplest. And after that, many of them would come to me and say, Brother Dana, they call me Brother Dana. I said, Brother Dana, your skin is white. And they used to make jokes about my white skin. And it's like, we got to wear sunglasses when we're around you because your skin is so bright and white, you know. It's like, and I was the only white guy around, you know, so it just, your skin is white, but your heart is brown. There was a transition that took place with these young men that 
those stories will be many notebooks will be written or many stories told, but they're all out there today, pastoring these village churches, making an impact. They're daring disciples. Bridget, when, when she was in Calcutta with that SEAL team, and they invited 150 young girls in this had been trafficked and came in just with the shame and just walked with their heads down and just like didn't feel like they deserved to be there. And we smuggled in these just elegant but simple necklaces and the women put the necklaces on them and, and then they, they began to um, minister to them. And, but then what was remarkable is Bridget and this team of ladies, they began to wash their feet, all 150 women. Just wash their feet. These women began to just celebrate. They realized that there's a God who loves them. There's a God who cares. There's a God who can replace the mourning with joy, dignity, and honor. That's really what the gospel is about. So I come to the close of this message. I'd like to ask you to stand with me. And they're really the next step that I believe that God wants to do in, in our hearts and lives this morning. There's just so many things that could be shared and told, but he, he wants to call us out today and say that you would just dare do the ridiculous and I can do the impossible in your life. I can do the impossible in your ministry. I can do the impossible with your children. And the Lord would say that I'm calling you out. I believe in you because I created you. I put those gifts within you and all of those things that are there, but there's so much more that he desires to do. And, and he will continuously build your faith just by a few scriptures. He builds our faith and gives us opportunities. And, and then he just comes and he breaks our box and just says, you know what? We're going to live our life according to kingdom culture, not the culture of this world. And the world will know the church is led by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus. And there's something different. I don't know what it is about. When somebody sees the hand of God in your life and it's like, I don't know what it is that you have, but I want what you want. If you're here tomorrow morning, you want us to take the next step and say, Dana, I'm willing to lay down a net or a few nets and leave them behind so that I can be this daring disciple that God is calling to me. Would you raise your hand right now and say, I'm willing to do that. And God may be dealing specific about some nets in your life that have become, they're not necessarily sin, but just a distraction that's kept you from the daring discipleship life that God is calling to you. And just raise your hand. I'm going to pray. Yes. Father, we come with those who have raised their hand and Lord, we lay down some of those nets, we lay down some of those distractions, and we pray, Father God, as you have called us out even here this morning, Father, that you would begin to move in our heart and life, and that we would dare to do the ridiculous so that you can do the impossible. Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name now, God, that you would touch those hearts. And Lord, this would be a new day that we leave different than when we came in to this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's just lift our hands and begin to thank the Lord for what he's going to do.